dance routine. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if you have a Bible with you this evening, you might like to turn it open uh, to First Peter. Uh, chapter 3. We're going to be looking this evening at verses 14 through 16. If you have one of the church uh, Bibles, that's on page uh, 1219. Uh, And if you've got one of those electronic things on your phone, just sort of keep scrolling, I guess, and it's there somewhere. Um, So, 1 Peter 3. And actually what we'll do this evening is just begin by reading at verse 13 through to uh, to verse uh, 16. So Peter writes these words, Who is going to harm you? If you are eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Wonderful. And thank you, Craig, for wrestling uh, with the technology there. Well, um, every year, the uh, charity Open Doors uh, publishes what they call the World Watch List. And that's the list, uh, their list of the 50 toughest cu- countries in the world uh, to be a Christian. Places where to be a Christian uh, can result in uh, persecution or arrest uh, or, uh, or torture. And their 2019 uh, World Watch List, published a few months ago, uh, revealed that 245 million Christians uh, around the world are highly persecuted for their faith. And to give that some kind of context, that's a 14% rise uh, from, uh, from 2018. So there are lots of places in the world where it's a very, very tough uh, call to be a Christian. All that said, though, uh, a colleague of mine uh, was recently in one of those countries uh, on a little preaching tour, and he got talking to a Christian leader uh, out in the Middle East who made a very interesting remark uh, to my colleague. Uh, He said these words. He said, you know, the greatest challenge facing us Christians in the East is persecution. The greatest challenge facing Christians in the East is persecution from the culture. He said, but as I look, you know, across the other side of the world, he said, it occurs to me that the greatest challenge facing you Christians in the West is seduction by the culture. And then he added this little stinger on the end. He said, I think I know which is the more deadly to the church. And you know, while Christians are not being actively persecuted uh, here in the West, it can still be tough, right, to be a Christian in a very, very secular country, very, very secular context uh, like, uh, like Scotland. According to a recent Europe-wide survey uh, carried out by a gentleman called Stephen Bullivant from St. Mary's University, he looked at the religious practices and beliefs of young people aged 16 to 29 in a number of countries uh, in Europe, and uh, he noted that the majority don't have any religious faith. Um, The UK, incidentally, come fifth on that list. 70% of uh, people aged 16 to 29 here in the United Kingdom identify is having no religion. And he ended his, uh, his report uh, on those statistics with this sobering quotation, this sobering line. He said, Christianity as a default, as a norm, is gone. And probably gone for good, or at least for the next 100 years. And I think given that 
secular context that we find ourselves in, we read stories like this quoted in the newspaper, we see these kind of facts and figures, it can be tempting for us as Christians to hide ourselves away behind the doors of our churches, to gather in church meetings, to shut the doors, but then to say nothing on Monday through Friday when we're at work or at school or at university. You know, I think the number one issue, the number one challenge that holds many Christians back from evangelizing, or that I certainly hear as I speak and travel, is fear. I hear many people say to me, you know, the the prospect of talking about Jesus with my colleagues at work, with my friends, with my family, uh, with the next door neighbor, fills many people, I think, with fear and trembling, not with joy and excitement. And so maybe that describes where some of you are this evening. And so the first thing I want to encourage you with is you're not alone. If you're sitting here this evening thinking, I wish I could get excited about evangelism, but it scares me to death, you are not alone. And also the good news is that these verses that I just read from 1 Peter chapter 3 have an enormous amount, I think, to help equip us, challenge us, and resource us for how we think about sharing our faith in our workplaces, uh, our universities, and our neighborhoods. So what I want to do over the next 25 minutes or so is walk us through some key ideas from those verses we just read, and hopefully give us some food for thought, a few challenges along the way, and some encouragement and some resources, so that on Monday morning, wherever you find yourself tomorrow morning, wherever God has placed you uh, during the week, maybe there's something here to encourage you uh, to be bolder uh, in how you share your faith at work, at school, or wherever. And the first thing I want to notice is, given that I've just talked about fear, it's interesting that right here at the top of this uh, passage, Peter talks about fear three times. Three times in one sentence, he uses the word fear. Uh, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, of course, if you know anything about the first century context to which Peter is addressing this, uh, this letter, this epistle, the Christians he's writing to had every excuse, every reason to be afraid. By the time Peter is writing this letter, the first waves of persecution have broken out against the early church, and the Romans are persecuting Christians uh, across the Roman Empire, Christians being arrested, uh, thrown into prison, uh, tortured, uh, or killed for their faith in Christ. One of the worst bullies uh, in, the, uh, in the time period was the Emperor Nero, and one of Nero's favorite tricks was to take Christian men and women, tie them to stakes in his garden, cover them in pitch, and set fire to them so to entertain his guests at his garden parties. So Peter's audience know all about fear. Peter is not writing to a group of Christians who are going to go, oh, fear? Are we afraid? They know what it is uh, to be afraid. And it's interesting in that context, in that, given that reality, what Peter doesn't say. You know, Peter doesn't say things like, you know, keep your heads down, keep quiet, say nothing. I mean, if I was Peter writing this letter to the early church, I'd have probably been tempted to say, you know, Nero's a bit of a bully, but he won't be around forever. So let's concentrate on prayer meetings until Nero's dead, and then we'll launch the Alpha Course. But that's not what Peter says. He doesn't say do things in secret. He doesn't say uh, wait till Nero's gone. He doesn't say shut up. Rather, he tells his uh, readers to speak up. And that's challenging uh, for us to reflect on today because we live in somewhat easier circumstances, still tough, but somewhat easier circumstances. And it can be very tempting, though, uh, to say nothing about Jesus for fear of what might happen at work or school or home. 
I remember before I went into Christian ministry, I worked for a large teaching hospital in London, worked in the NHS for five years, and I was profoundly challenged that I, work, I discovered at the sort of luncheon they threw to um, either commiserate or celebrate my leaving. I'm not sure what you should really do when people leave, celebrate or commiserate. But anyway, the little lunch they, they threw when I was leaving, that it turned out that one of my colleagues from two doors down on the corridor I worked on, I found out on that last day at the hospital, was a Christian. But she'd kept it quiet. I'd kept it quiet. I'd basically been an undercover Christian for five years and sort of hidden away because I was afraid what would have happened if I talked about my faith with a result that I missed the fact there was a fellow believer uh, just two doors down. So what are we afraid of? What causes uh, Christians to be tempted at work, at university, at home, among our non-Christian friends to actually not perhaps speak up as much as we might? What are we actually afraid of? And having asked that question uh, to thousands of people uh, up and down the country when we do these kind of seminars and things that we do at Solas, so we often sort of ask that question, you know, who here is, if they're honest, a little bit nervous and why? There are some common answers. Fear of looking silly. Fear of looking stupid. Fear of being asked a question we can't answer. I remember somebody once saying to me, I'm actually afraid of making the gospel look bad. I'm so terrified of saying something stupid, it's probably better for the gospel if I say nothing rather than anything. Um, Fear of reputation, and maybe in today's age, fear of the consequences, fear of what might happen at work if I were to become known as a a public Christian. But here's a challenging thought for us uh, this evening. I I wonder partly if it's why Peter majors on fear and begins this passage talking about sharing our faith by talking about fear. I just wonder if sometimes the fears that we have, uh, particularly our fears about evangelism, show where our hearts really lie. Now, one of my favorite non-Christian writers is this gentleman, David Foster Wallace. David's an interesting chap. He was a Pulitzer Prize-nominated writer. Uh, Not a Christian. He was an atheist, um, but quite a reflective, thoughtful atheist, not one of the angry variety. And uh, said a number of things that when you read him, you sort of think, gosh, you're so close, but I just wish a little bit closer. Um, But one of the last essays he wrote towards the end of his life, he said something very, very interesting that I think connects to this whole issue of fear and evangelism. Let me read you what he wrote and then uh, show you what I mean. In a very famous passage uh, in one of his last pieces of writing, he wrote these words. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is actually no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody gets to worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And what David Foster Wallace is getting at in that, in that incredible paragraph he, he wrote there, a couple of paragraphs, is that every human being worships something. Something. 
Even our atheist friends worship something. By worship, he means all of us as human beings. Every human being takes something and makes it the center of their life, the center of their joy, their identity, their significance, and so on. Now, of course, for Christians, that for us should be Jesus. But just sometimes, perhaps he gets eclipsed. But here's the interesting thing. The thing that you make the center of your life, well, you have to have it. You absolutely have to have it. You need to have that thing. You, and if you're afraid you might lose it, you become anxious and fearful and so on and so forth. And of course, the problem with making things like money and career and power and image the center of your life is one day you will lose those things. But underlying what he wrote there is this key idea. Our fears identify our idols. If you're afraid of something, maybe that thing is rather more important to you than you realized. And I began to realize as a young Christian that just maybe my fear of speaking up, my fear of sharing my faith at work, maybe just showed me that deep down my reputation, my comfortable life, my quiet life had become an idol. And if we're afraid of sharing our faith and it makes us a little bit nervous because of, and whatever, because of, uh, you insert into that sentence, maybe that's just a little bit of a clue to the state of our hearts. And we need to bring that one before the Lord and say, Lord, could it just be that I've made my reputation at work more important than the gospel? In which case, Lord, I'm sorry I I lay that down and uh, please help address that issue in my heart. And that's why I think Peter three times mentions the word fear, because if we're afraid, it raises questions about where our hearts really lie. And that's why Peter moves on in the next verse to talk about our hearts. He then segues into the whole issue of our hearts. And there's a lot going on in this verse where Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Many of you are probably aware, of course, when Peter uses the word heart uh, here, uh, the Greek word actually he uses here is the Greek word cardia, from which we get things like cardiology and so on and so forth. But Peter, of course, is not referring to the four-chambered blood pump uh, that pumps blood around our veins. He's referring to the heart as the, the very center of our being, the very center of our identity. And of course, it's very easy as Christians for that center of our identity uh, to become, you know, a little bit blurred at times. It's easy for Christian faith, if we're not careful, to become just something we do on Sundays. You know, we come to St. Pete's on a Sunday evening or a Sunday morning or sometimes both if we're really keen. But actually, it becomes just another thing we do, like family and work and a a couple of hobbies. And then Jesus gets squeezed into the, the bits to the left. But of course, the Bible says he needs to be the one around, the, around whom the whole show uh, revolves. He needs to be the Lord of everything. And evangelism begins when we get that right. The first step in evangelism is prayerfully ensuring that Jesus really is the Lord of our hearts. Otherwise, it's going to be incoherent when we try and share him with our neighbors and our colleagues and our friends. Next up, um, Peter says, set, a heart, set apart, make sure you're in your heart, set apart uh, Christ as Lord. And again, Peter is reminding us that Jesus needs to be set apart from all of our other uh, interests and priorities. 
You know, I'm struck how often I meet people uh, when I'm talking in things like cafes and pubs and schools and universities who think that Christianity is just another piece of advice, just a set of interesting rules for living or a religion, you know, whatever that means. Uh, But I always say to my, you know, skeptical friends and to people in those kind of audiences, you know, I find it interesting that the word the first Christians used to describe their movement was not advice. They didn't preach across the ancient world going, hey, we've got a wonderful piece of advice or a wonderful new set of you know, pragmatic rules to follow or so on and so forth. They didn't even really use the word religion, but they picked the word gospel from the Greek euangelion, which means good news. And of course, the interesting thing about news is it's only good if it really, really happened and it means what we think it means. And I remember back in um, 1997, I, uh, I asked uh, Astrid, my wife, or she wasn't my wife then, she was my girlfriend, because that would have been very confusing. I asked her if she'd marry me. And she said yes, and there was no hypnosis involved. Now, imagine after having, on the 30th of August 1997, asked Astrid to marry me, and she said yes, I had rung up a friend at Oxford University who was perhaps an analytic philosopher. And my friend had said, that's quite interesting. Let us analyze the statement, Andy Bannister is now engaged, using modal logic, the philosophy of Wittgenstein, and a whole other number of words I can't pronounce on a Sunday evening. Potentially, I think he'd miss the point. Because I wasn't sharing a factoid or some philosophy, I was sharing a piece of news, that the most wonderful woman in the world had agreed to marry me for some reason. And again, either that was true, in which case everything had changed, or it wasn't, and it was a load of old rubbish. And the gospel, uh, the New Testament uses exactly the same approach when it talks about the gospel and the message of Jesus. It doesn't say, here's a philosophy, or here's an interesting religious idea, but here's who Jesus is, and here's what he did, and here's why this is incredible news. And that's always the way the New Testament approaches the way uh, the first Christians evangelized as they took the gospel across the ancient world. Good news uh, changes lives. Uh, advice doesn't. And then Peter adds to the words set apart and to hearts. Peter adds the words Lord. And of course, at its heart, uh, Christianity is a, is a lordship claim, as Romans 10 uh, verse 9 uh, powerfully reminds us. And it was very, very interesting that I was doing a university uh, mission uh, in Canada a few months ago, back in the country I used to live in. And there was a young lad came to our university mission week from a Hindu, he was Hindu uh, background, Indian gentleman. He'd only moved to Canada a few weeks before and never met any Christians. uh, But he discovered this university mission that was going on, the offer of free food, kind of bribed him to come. And he started coming to all of the events that we were doing, lunch bars and and evening events. And on the last night, he was talking to myself and uh, a colleague, and he said to us, uh, his name was was Ashwant, he looked at us and he said, you know, I've really enjoyed this week, first time I've ever really talked to Christians. And he said, I could imagine how in a year's time, I might be a Christian. And my colleague, who was more on the ball than I was, looked at him and said, just out of interest, Ashwant, why do you say in a year's time? He went, well, I imagine there are classes to take and doctrine to master and perhaps even exams that I have to pass through to be able to enter the Christian community. And we actually opened this verse up, Romans 10, verse 9, and said, the Bible's very clear uh, on what the entry criteria for a Christian is. Ashwan, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? He went, well, I believe he's the Son of God. You've persuaded me of that this week. I went, well, I think that ticks that box. We said, do you believe that you're a, you're a sinner who needs forgiveness? Do you believe there's stuff in your life that you need to say sorry to to, to Jesus for and he went boy do I, need, do I need that he said I know some of the stuff I've got up to and then lastly we said do you believe that Jesus rose 
from the dead. And he went, well, after your seminar at lunchtime, Andy, on the historical evidence of the resurrection, how could I not? And we looked at him and said, well, you could wait for a year, or we could pray this verse through with you, and you could become a Christian right now. And he did, from one year to eight minutes. And uh, he became one of the most excited converts I've ever seen. So the fact that when he was at church on the Sunday morning, you could hardly constrain him. He was like a helium balloon bouncing about, and he was so excited with this newfound faith in Jesus that he discovered when he'd figured out what it means that Jesus is Lord. You know, we live in an age and a culture that tells you that everything is about your identity. Choose your you know, sexuality, choose your tribe, choose your gender, choose your political cause, uh, whatever defines you. But all those things are transitory, of course, and they will pass, and they're a poor foundation for living. By contrast, the gospel says it's all about his identity and not our identity. And uh, that makes a huge difference. Then as we head on into the middle of the verse, Peter says, be prepared. Be prepared. Always be prepared, in fact. And the, the Greek word translated here into the English, be prepared, one of the senses it had was of kind of physical preparation and training. The idea not just, not just of getting fit, but staying fit. And if any of you in this uh, congregation this evening are, are at all sporty, you will know there's a difference, right, between getting fit and staying fit. When uh, Astrid and I last moved house, um, on a whim, we bought some exercise equipment. Uh, we bought an exercise bike and one of these cross-trainer things that I'm not sure quite what it did, does, but the man in the shop assured me it would make a difference. And for the first three weeks, we had this kit, I think partly because of the guilt of the credit card statement, we used it every day. And uh, I ended up looking toned and fit and muscular. I know some of you are thinking I look that way already, so thank you for that and affirmation. But then after about three weeks, um, it sort of began to disappear. And uh, furthermore, a Starbucks opened around the corner from where I live, and uh, the chocolate brownies were sort of rather too tasty, and all of that good work, well, suffice to say, if I turn sideways and don't breathe in, I would not look like a man with exercise equipment in his basement. You see, getting fit is easy. Staying fit is much harder. And the same goes when it comes to evangelism. You know, it's easy to, you know, read a book or hear a sermon and get motivated. But Peter says we need to put the work in. We need to always be prepared. And the question is, if we want to reach our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our classmates, you know, are we, are we praying for them regularly and faithfully? I love that during the, the prayer time when John uh, said to those, that couple who were getting married, suggested we pray for them every week. Are we praying for our non-Christian friends and family every week that there'd be opportunities to share with them? Are we reading the Bible and asking the Lord, Lord, is there stuff here in the scriptures that you would put on my heart that could be really you know, helpful in terms of sharing uh, with my friends? Are we reading widely, trying to you know, figure out what are the objections and the issues that hold our friends back from the gospel and getting ourselves prepared? Are we reading and digging into those, those issues so we can open up conversations with them? Evangelism, says Peter, takes work and we need to be willing to put the effort in. And then he moves on. Peter says, if we do that, if we take the effort to always be prepared, then we can give a reason. And I remember as a young Christian being very struck by this verse, actually, on the PowerPoint, give a reason. Because I'd kind of grown up in a Christian tradition that had for a long time given me the impression that Christian faith was something you believe because you believe because you believed. And it was quite a revelation to realize that actually Christianity was not just a compelling personal story about me and Jesus, but something for which reasons can be given. And you know, that's hugely impressive, uh, important, because we live in an age in which many people have impressive personal stories. 
you know, I talked about my studies of Islam. Over the years, I have had many dialogues and conversations with Muslim friends. And many of my Muslim friends have very impressive stories about why Islam is meaningful to them. And I have to have something better when I go into those conversations than, well, that's great, you've got a personal story, let me share mine. I have to be able to say to them, well, actually, there's a reason why I think Christianity is true. Many of our friends and neighbors and colleagues have compelling personal stories. And we have to have a way of saying to them, look, there are good reasons to take Christianity seriously. I'm not simply saying to you, take my story over yours. I remember a year and a half or so ago, he was speaking at a lunchtime event at uh, Aberdeen uh, University. And uh, again, speaking on the resurrection, one of my favorite to- uh, topics to speak on. And um, after I'd given this talk on the historical evidence for the resurrection, this uh, young student came up the aisle to, uh, to speak to me. I'm realizing one of the pitfalls of being in my late 40s, I refer to students as young. Um, it's downhill from here, I realize. But anyway, he was in his early 20s, back onto the story. And he walked to the front of the, uh, the, the lecture hall, came to talk to me. And he said, Andy, have you got a moment? And I said that I had. And he said, well, let me tell you my story. He said, I was raised in a, in a Christian home. I was a, was a Christian until I was about 13, but then I abandoned it all. I became an atheist because I discovered science and other things, and I assumed that Christianity was just a, you know, a thing you believe, and there was no reasons for it. I walked away, threw it all in, became an atheist, quite a committed atheist, and I have been for the last 10 years. Then he said, I came to this event this lunchtime, first Christian event I've been to in years because I was bribed with a free sandwich. He said, you've just given 35 minutes of evidence effectively with footnotes, for why the central event of Christianity is true. And he said, some of it's pretty compelling. And he looked at me and he said, why did nobody tell me? Why did nobody tell me 10 years ago there was evidence that Christianity was true? I thought Christians just believed because they believed, but there's evidence? And then he asked me this question. He said, what do I do? What do I do? I think I've made a horrible mistake, a terrible mistake. Whatever shall I do? And I just looked at him and smiled and said, it's lucky, isn't it, that Jesus is in the business of dealing with horrible mistakes? Mine and yours. I would suggest you sign up for the Christianity Explored course the Christian Union here are running and really take a hard look at Jesus. And he went off and did just that. If someone said to you tomorrow morning at work or wherever, you know, why are you a Christian? What would your answer to that question be? What would be the reasons that you would give uh, for the hope that you would have? What's your elevator speech, as our American friends would say, for Christianity? And the New Testament, it always boils down to Jesus' identity, his claims, his death, and his resurrection. But as we begin drawing the threads together, what should we give reasons for, says Peter? Well, we should give reasons for hope. And I think this is a fascinating uh, comment Peter makes here, because we live right now in a world in which hope is in short supply, right? We live in a world in which hope uh, is in short supply, whether it's Brexit or climate change or, or job insecurity or artificial intelligence. You know, it seems that wherever we turn, our culture has a hope crisis. And as I talk to non-Christian friends and people I meet as I travel the country, this issue of where we find hope is one that's coming up more and more and more these days. You know, uh, about a year or so ago, I uh, spoke at Dundee uh, University and uh, met an interesting chap there, a young student called Cole. 
And uh, he'd come along to an event we were doing there that night. We were doing an event with a CU where I did a dialogue with one of the atheist professors uh, there at Dundee uh, University. And um, I think we were doing a dialogue on science, but it turned into a bit of a dialogue on meaninglessness, actually, because this atheist professor uh, thought that life had no meaning and everything was pointless and we'd all, all, the human race was doomed and all of these cheerful, exciting things. And he thought that was you know, pretty cool and trendy, but he came across as a bit of a sort of sad character across the evening. Well, Cole, this university student who'd come to the event, was also an atheist. And as he said, I was very similar, a kind of atheist. He said, I believe that life had no meaning. I thought everything was pointless. And he said, I thought that was really trendy. And then he said, I sat in the front row and realized if I didn't change my ideas, in 25 years' time, I was going to be like David, the atheist, who didn't look cool. He just looked sad. And he said, that question of hope struck me. He said, because I wasn't persuaded so much by the arguments on either side. He said, I was struck by the fact, Andy, that you had hope. And the atheist professor had none. And he said, that question haunted me. And as he pursued the answer to that, it led him to Jesus Christ. And he became a Christian. And it was cool, actually. I didn't know this had happened until I bumped into him at Central Baptist Church uh, a few months later. And he came up and shared his story. And if you want to read more of his story, actually, the uh, website address there, broken nicely by the line in the middle of the screen, uh, you can read his story. He very kindly shared his testimony with us on the Solas website. You know, stories like Coles remind me of what the French Christian uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal once said. He said, you know, make Christianity attractive. Make good people wish that it were true when they see the hope and the joy and the meaning that it offers. And then show them that it is. And then finally, Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Good character is, is crucial for people would judge our words uh, by our lives. That said, our good living isn't enough. You know, I think I probably, thinking back to my days of working for the NHS, I think I was probably operating under the, the uh, model of saying, thinking to myself, well, if I'm a really nice person, if I'm a lovely colleague and I'm helpful and kind, then I'll, I'm effectively evangelizing by showing love to my friends. Of course, looking back, my colleagues at the hospital didn't know I was being, trying to be a nice person because I was a Christian. They probably just assumed I was a nice person. That said, our character is crucial and can make a tremendous difference uh, in the right setting. Uh, a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine <coughs> uh, met a Christian teacher from a Muslim country, predominantly Muslim country. And this Christian teacher was one of only a couple of two or three Christians in this school. The rest of the school, the teachers and the pupils, were all Muslims. And he was one of a tiny number of Christians. One day, in the middle of the school assembly, the Muslim head teacher calls this Christian teacher up on stage in front of something like 1,400 pupils and staff, predominantly Muslims, and begins to grill this Christian teacher about his Christian faith in quite an aggressive way. And during this grilling, he looks at the Christian teacher and says, is it not true that in your Bible, Christians are told that if someone strikes you on the cheek, you are to turn the other cheek and not respond with violence? And the Christian teacher said, yes, Jesus said that. And then suddenly, without warning, the head teacher takes his hand and literally strikes this Christian teacher across the face in front of 1,400 people. Doing, I guess, the only thing he could do at that point, the Christian teacher turns the other cheek and receives another resounding blow across the other side of the face. And then the Muslim head teacher looks at him and says, get off my stage. Christian teacher walks back to his classroom shuts the door and sits quietly at his desk, beginning to weep, really, feeling he's 
let the gospel down, he's let Jesus down, and feeling all the kind of things you might feel in that situation. About five minutes, there's a knock on the door. And he opens it, and it's a Muslim pupil who's come to apologize for what the head teacher did. He's followed by another, and another, and another. And over the two weeks or so after that incident happened, that teacher had the privilege of leading about half a dozen uh, students to Christ because they had been so entirely impressed by his willingness to live out the words of Jesus when facing that utterly humiliating public uh, rebuke. Character and conviction go together. They go hand in hand, gentleness and respect. And as we draw these threads together that we've been looking at from uh, First Peter this evening, you know, think back to where we began. It's easy to read church stories of the church's decline, to look at the, the secular culture, how hostile it is, and feel afraid and to feel discouraged. Um, but as I reflect on what it's been like to, you know, work and serve here in Scotland these kind of last two and a half years or so that we've been here, now I'm, I'm, not, encur- I'm not discouraged, actually, I'm encouraged. And the reason I'm encouraged is when, I see, when I've seen Christians put First Peter 3, verse 14 through 16, into practice, it works. God shows up, God blesses it, and lives are, are changed. And everywhere I travel uh, across uh, Scotland and the wider UK, we see God at work in amazing ways, whether it's students becoming Christians, whether it's churches that are, that are growing, uh, whether it's people recommitting their lives to Christ, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the Christians to whom Peter wrote these words that we've been looking at this evening, 2,000 years ago, they could have hidden away. They could have hidden away and said nothing, but they didn't. They preached and they proclaimed, they suffered and they died. They took up their crosses and followed Jesus. And through what they did, the church grew from about 120 people in AD 33 to 31 million people in AD 350. Or to put it this way, the church grew from 0% of the Roman Empire to 52.9% of the Roman Empire in three centuries because of the Christians who put these words into practice. In more contemporary uh, times, Christians in China suffering under communism grew from a few thousand uh, in 1950 to 150 million today. Or you look to uh, the Middle East, to Iran. Iran is now the fastest growing church uh, in the world. There are over a million Iranian Christians following Jesus Christ, even though it's tough, even though it's hard, even though they're persecuted, because they've put this kind of stuff into practice. And as I look at that, what encourages me is, you know, we are, to use the biblical language, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, both as we look back through history and as we look around the world today. We're surrounded by this incredible cloud of witnesses and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a wonderful uh, saviour. We have great news uh, to tell, an incredible gospel, and God's spirit is at work. And so the only question for each one of us is how are we going to get involved with what the Lord is doing? Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we have uh, an amazing gospel. 
Thank you that you stepped into history and the person of Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you died on our behalf and rose spectacularly from the grave, demonstrating your victory over sin and death and alienation. And uh, thank you for the change that's brought uh, in each one of us, bringing us into relationship with you, that we can call you Father. But Lord, we confess that sometimes uh, through fear and through timidity and through other pressures that society puts on in us, we keep that gospel to ourselves. And Lord, I just uh, ask that you would forgive us for times when we haven't spoken up. And Lord, ask that you would fill us with your spirit this evening. Fill us with boldness, not from arrogance or confidence in ourselves, but in the gospel. Uh, next week, Lord, wherever we find ourselves uh, on Monday morning, whether it's at work or with friends or talking with next-door neighbors, the next non-Christians who come across our path, would you give us a, a passion and a boldness to share the incredible news of what Jesus has done with them. And Lord, right now, even for some of us, would you place onto our hearts, bring into our minds, particular non-Christian friends, Friends, who you would have us begin praying for regularly, reaching out to regularly. Would you bring names to mind right now, Lord? And in the weeks and months ahead, uh, would you keep us faithful in praying and, uh, and consistent in our witness? And Lord, thank you uh, that through us we trust uh, that your kingdom will advance. Pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Thank you.